0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Social justice, Christ's call to care. Oh, said, make sure you introduce yourself. For those of you who don't know me on Mars, I'm a I've been to this church since I was a lad. And um, I'm a burnt-out, retired social worker who occasionally preaches and it gives me nerves, so please be patient with me. And I'm preaching this morning on the topic of social justice, which is, uh, I really I actually volunteered for this, somewhat foolishly, because I, I wasn't long into reading this when I realised that I've bitten off more than I can chew. Uh, it's a broad topic. Uh, it's potentially contentious. Uh, there's a number of different opinions, and um, so to try and get through this morning, what I've done is I've got a number of segments that patch together and it won't cover the subject in its entirety. I'm uh, aware of that, so at the end, if at the end of the sermon you think, oh, you should have said this you should have talked about that, I understand that, but I hope it flows nonetheless. Um, but I thought I'd start with a who am I exercise. In fact, I've Next slide please, is this bloke recognisable to you? Can anyone tell me who he is? Virginia said this, she said, no one knows who he is. And then my dad walked past the computer last night and said, oh, you've got a picture of him. So we'll see if he becomes recognisable to you. He was born in England in 1801 into an aristocratic, wealthy family. His childhood was unhappy and loveless. He grew up without any experience of parental love. His parents were distant, and when they were involved, they were frequently abusive. His father, one day when he uh, went to register in a new school, at the entrance to the classroom, his father beat him to the ground and said to the tutor, make sure you treat him the same way. Um, even as an adult, he referred to his mother as a devil. Um, but his typical childhood uh, was softened by the actions, of one, the actions of affection of one person, the family housekeeper, a woman by the name of Maria Millis. Oh. <laughs> Maria was a compassionate Christian woman who treated him with kindness and would read him Bible stories when he was unhappy. Throughout his life, he described her as the best friend he'd ever had. Um, Sadly, she died when he was away at boarding school, and he never found out where she had been buried. But she bequeathed him a watch, which he'd carried for the rest of his life. Um, Schooling was another source of misery for him, and it introduced him to what he described as a disgusting range of horrors Where he said the main treatment was one of starvation and cruelty. By his teenage years, he was a committed Christian, and his parents sent him to the elite Harrow School and uh, where he had a pivotal pivotal experience. One day, at the foot of Harrow Hill, he saw a a pauper's funeral, and the pallbearers were all drunk, uh, carrying a crudely made coffin. And as they marched towards the grave, they were all singing bawdy songs. And it struck home to him the callousness of existence for the poor in that society. He went on to study classics at Oxford, and at the tender age of 25, he was elected to Parliament. Does anyone know who he is yet? William Wilberforce. Good guess, but no. He he had a brief interaction with Wilberforce because he attended Wilberforce's funeral, but my guess is they didn't chat much there. (laughs) He entered Parliament the year after Wilberforce left. So at the tender age of 25, he was elected to Parliament. Um... And next slide. He felt that God had called him to devote whatever advantages he might have bestowed in the cause of the weak, the helpless, both man and beast, and those who had none to help them. His maiden speech in Parliament was on the welfare of the mentally ill, who in those days were known as lunatics and were housed in what were known as pauper's lunatic asylums. And the conditions in there were absolutely shocking. They were really appalling. And so he made his maiden speech about the conditions for lunatics. Um, after, next slide, please. Afterwards, after his maiden speech, he wrote in his diary, So by God's blessing, my first effort has been to the advance of human happiness. May I improve hourly. Fright almost deprived me of recollection, but again, thank heaven, I did not sit down, I'm quite a presumptuous idiot. This wasn't a showpiece maiden speech to get a sound grab to elevate his political profile. It was the start of 50 years of political activism for the mentally ill. Uh, he lobbied hard and was very actively involved in forming conditions uh, for the mentally ill. Hopefully, does anyone know who he is yet? I'm getting worried about our knowledge of history. Hopefully the next section, this is what he's probably more fact. The mentally ill thing is interesting because when I read about the history of him, he changed the treatment of the mentally ill in British society. Uh, but what he's more known for is the next section. In 1833, he introduced legislation to the House of Commons to prohibit anyone at the age of 18 years working more than 10 hours a day, six days a week. This is in Dickensian Britain. Uh, there was fierce opposition to this, and for years he battled for better conditions for women and children who worked in factories and the mines. Um, that's one of the few photos, of drawing uh, that I could find. Typically, children of the poor worked in the coal mines, which powered the Industrial Revolution. From what I read, the tunnels were typically only three foot high, about that high, and children were the perfect height for pulling the carts. And they'd usually have a child on the front on a chain, and that one's got an adult at the back, but typically it was an, a child at the back, and they would push the back of the cart with their forearms. Lord Shaftesbury. Thanks very much, Claire. Lord Shaftesbury, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, Anthony Ashley Cooper. And uh, in 1842, he introduced legislation to outlaw women and children working underground in the coal mines. He was also president of, wait for it, the Climbing Boys Society, uh, which was an organisation he formed to try and uh, outlaw the use of children's chimney sweeps. He was president of this for 35 years. Uh, this is one of the things that struck me about reading the students. He didn't take up something for a week but for a soundbite. He would lobby for things for decades. Um, eventually, in 1875, the practice was outlawed due to his efforts. His motivation in assisting the poor was driven solely by his Christian faith, such that his political opponents soon came to call him saint, this was not a term of endearment, but it was actually a term of abuse. Later, due to his decades long advocacy for the poor and marginalised, he became known as the poor man's earl. He enjoyed a happy marriage to Emily Cowper, but continued to suffer from bouts of depression throughout his life. Another cause he was involved in was a really radical concept. It was the, the idea that the children of the poor should not just be prevented from working in mines and factories, but they should actually receive free education. So he was personally involved, he was president of the Ragged School Union. They called them the Ragged Schools. uh, And he helped raise and fund 350 schools throughout London for the education of the poor. Um, Again, this was something that he was involved with for 40 years. Uh, and it was this cause that was actually closest to his heart. He, he once wrote, um, if ever the ragged school should be abolished, I won't die of natural causes, I'll die of a broken heart. He, he had his fingers in a lot of eyes. He was the first president of the Society for the Suppression of the Opium Trade that sought to outlaw the massive trade in opium that the English economy finally benefited from. The living conditions in the slums of London and other English cities were absolutely shocking. One indication of this is that in 1850, there was a cholera outbreak in the slums across Britain and 50,000 people died of cholera. Uh, In 1851, uh, he took a very active interest in the quality of housing for the poor. And in 1851 he introduced what was known as the Lodging House Act to try to improve these conditions. The author Charles Dickens called it the best piece of legislation that ever proceeded from the English Parliament. Next slide please. He died uh, in 1885 and some of you might have heard of the famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon who eulogised him. Spurgeon wrote, In the taking home to himself of our, by our gracious Lord of the Earl of Shaftesbury, we have in my judgment lost the best man of the age. I do not know whom I should place second, but I certainly should put him first. Take him whichever way you please, he was admirable. He was faithful to God in all his house, fulfilling both the first and second commands of the law in fervent love of God and hearty love of man. We shall not know for many a year how much we miss in missing him, how great an anchor he was to this drifting generation, and how great a stimulus he was to every movement for the benefit of the poor. Both man and beast may unite in mourning him. He was the friend of every living thing. He lived for the oppressed. He, still, he lived still more for God. So, in a sermon on um, social justice, it's fairly obvious why I'd have to include somebody like Lord Shaftesbury. I'm actually not going to comment any further on him. Oh, sorry, I also meant to say that that was the eulogy. He was offered um, the honour of a tomb in Westminster Abbey, which he declined. Uh, but on the day of his funeral, the 8th of October 1885, uh, it was a day where the weather was atrocious, it rained all day, and the streets of London were jammed with the poor lining the streets to view his funeral cortege to pay respects to the poor man. Um, I'm not going to comment any further on Lord Charles, but I'm going to come back to him later in the message. In speaking about social justice, um, I think that for many Christians they think it's a nice idea, but they can be tempted to think that this is more the domain of lefty politically active Christians. It can be seen as something that's not central to the gospel message. But what we find that the principles of social justice uh, flow through the Bible through both the Old and the New Testament. Social justice is a modern term. But the thinking that underpins it permeates what is written in the scriptures. The principles of justice, compassion, and mercy being shown towards all, all, regardless of their status, race, or gender, going through the scriptures. So I'll just put a few of those up. Okay, next slide, please. Give justice, So, Psalm 82, verse 3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Proverbs 1 8 89, Open your mouth to the mute, to the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Next slide, please. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, this, this is Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. And then in Micah six, verse eight, is a very well passage. He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And then Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. There's also another well-known passage from Amos uh, that's often quoted. Uh, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness is a strength. It's one that we're all familiar with. Really, to quote that passage in its entirety, I'm going to do that. Next slide, please. It's a little bit provocative. This is God speaking through Amos to an affluent church, to an affluent people in a time uh, of considerable injustice. He says, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fat animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. That's pretty darn blunt, isn't it? The common theme in the books of the prophets is that God detests outward religious observance and practices if we haven't addressed the issue of justice in our community. Discussions about social justice often start with what? What is it that we should do? Should we be looking at tax reform, uh, income distribution, uh, public housing, welfare benefits, for environmental protection. But really, we should start from the place of who? Who should we be most concerned about? When we read the Bible, we find frequent references to the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, the foreigner, but the theme of it is that our primary concern should be for the most poor, the most vulnerable, and the most marginalized in our society. And who they are can vary from culture to culture and from generation to generation. So for example, in Australia, um, back in that time, when life expectancy was much shorter, the issue of being an orphan was a much more common and much bigger issue. In this day and age in Australia, uh, there's a much lower rate of children becoming orphans. Um, this, so this can vary from culture to culture and from generation to generation. But the principle is one of seeking to protect and care for the most vulnerable. Earlier we heard the parable of the Good Samaritan and this always needs to be read and understood in the light of the fact that its message describes the essence of the two greatest commandments. And in this, Christ was being incredibly provocative. The common Jewish understanding of a neighbour was someone like yourself, someone like me. Um, but Christ in choosing to, to illustrate who could fulfill the greatest commandments, he chose a Samaritan. Well, the, the Samaritans were despised, they were considered spiritual and physical outcasts. And he used a Samaritan to illustrate the notion that God's greatest commandments could be fulfilled by hated followers. And the underlying principle of that is that love is not like looking after like. But true love of our neighbour entails us to look out for the needs of those who are different to ourselves or who are less fortunate. At that time, and in that culture, this was an incredibly radical concept. Uh, but this was the essence of Shaftesbury's love. He was a privileged, wealthy English arist- aristocrat. who, so if you had been like most other aristocrats who Entered the House of Lords, then he would, would have sought to protect his own financial interests. Instead, he was moved by compassion for the most poor in, in his society, indeed, to offer up the whole of his life in the service of them in Victorian England. Typically, when the wealthy and powerful enter the political arena, it is motivated by a desire to protect and extend their wealth and power. And I'll make a little bit of a comment here. If we have become politically active, then we should not be driven by self-interests. That's a Christian approach to politics. If we have become politically active, we should not be driven by self-interest, but by a genuine desire to improve the circumstances of the most poor and vulnerable in our society. We live in a hyper-individualistic society in a hyper-individualistic age. And with this backdrop, there's the risk that we come with that approach to our faith. What will this be for me? How will my life be improved? Rather than, the question should be, I have received much, and I have the ability and responsibility to care for those more vulnerable than myself. Next slide please. Christian social justice is action arising from a compassionate concern to alleviate the suffering and injustice that the poor and most vulnerable experience. It's something that we do, not just something that we feel or believe. Lord Shaftesbury was a compassionate, sensitive man. But if only was feel it, then nothing would have happened. Um, he moved from there to action. If we do this regardless of whether that personal group is of the same social, racial, or ethnic background as ourselves, or if they have different religious beliefs to ourselves. Um, Craig this morning spoke about Peter and Esther Scarborough. Um, I, I visited this clinic where they do the meetings on many occasions, and uh, when I was there, they were they were providing more services to Muslims than Christians and all of the services they they provide are free of charge. The social justice tradition um, embraces three great themes, which I've possibly talked about this, and it's encapsulated in three Hebrew words that are a little bit tricky, a little bit complex to define. The first one is Mishpah. Technically, it means justice, but it's an expansive word incorporating social, ethical, and religious obligations. It was often used in conjunction with the Hebrew word for righteousness. In Aussie Lingo, the closest term might be the notion of a fair go or looking out for the underdog. In Deuteronomy 10, uh, verse 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food. In Psalm 103, verse 6: The Lord works righteousness and justice, mishpat, for all the oppressed. The next term, is it? Um, Translators struggle to find an English equivalent for this term. The closest would be to describe it as loving kindness, or steadfast love, or everlasting ever love encompasses graciousness, courtesy, and compassion. God speaking through Isaiah commands, "I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice; the knowledge of God, and not burnt offerings." And sometimes these terms are actually drawing and explaining emotions for the next passage. Um, so that very important passage from Micah. He has shown you, O people, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, Mishnah, and to love mercy, Hesych, and to walk humbly with your God. Um, next slide, please. The third um, term is Shalom, which is a federal number two. And generally, when we use it, it uh, seems to be a word that translates as belief, as peace. But the broader Hebrew understanding of it was one of wholeness, unity, and balance that pointed to the vision of the harmonious, all-inclusive, loving community. Uh, next, please. Richard Foster describes a clip thus, We are in harmony with God. Faithfulness and loyalty prevail. We are in harmony with our neighbour. Justice and mercy abound. We are in harmony with nature, peace, and unity reign. This is the vision of Shalom. Economically and socially, the vision of Shalom means a caring and consideration of all peoples. So, let me return to the story of Lord Shaftesbury. In recounting the story of his life, I think that there's a risk that there's a significant number of people sitting here today that may be thinking, "My story, Martin. Yep, Lord Shaftesbury, pretty impressive. He achieved a lot for the poor and marginalised, very inspirational. But I'm not an Oxford-educated aristocrat with all the resources that go with that. At At the end of the day, I'm not really sure how much this applies to me. I won't ask for a hands on that one, but just in case, I'll with that in. However, the story that I recounted is actually a story of two social justice warriors, the obvious one being Lord Shaftesbury, but who was the other social justice warrior. His nan. His nan. What would have happened if, in the early 1800s, Woman's name was Maria Mullis. Couldn't find a picture of her. An English maid who saw how her master's children were abused and neglected had just said to herself, I see their pain, but my job and person specifications just say I'm to look after the house and help with the meals. And she had shuffled past like the priest and the Levite in the Good Samaritan. Uh, here's the question I'd ask. How might the course of British history change if she had done that? So in thinking about actions of social justice, they can occur at the seemingly trivial personal level or at a more grand level when we talk about legislation and societal change. But both of them are important. Um, And I'm conscious that... There are many members in this church actively involved in work for the poor and the marginalised. And if nothing else, I hope that this morning's message encourages you to persist with your efforts. I didn't want to start naming people, but there's, there's so many. And moment you start doing that, you miss that out. Um, so much of the most important frontline work for the less fortunate is not in the public eye. It is done by faithful, quiet people who see a need or suffering and are moved to do something about it. Uh, Craig did put up Peter and Esther Scarborough, and uh, I've been speaking with Esther several times over the last couple of weeks. Um, And they are doing it very tough. And I've been to Indonesia a number of times and spent quite a bit of time at the front line of what they do. And I've had a number of discussions with Kurt Marlborough. Uh, uh, the conversation got some like There aren't many people I know who I could say they have been personally and directly responsible for saving hundreds of people's lives. And I say that without any exaggeration. They're not going to blow their trumpet. They're not that sort of people. But I know that that's what's happened. and they're compassionate Christians who saw a need and felt that God had called him to do something about it. I think that there's another risk in recounting the story of Shaftesbury and Millis. On the one hand, we look at the actions and achievements of Shaftesbury with a sense of Christian pride. It's a really good thing. But there is another side to this coin. Many of Shaftesbury's opponents were church-going professing Christians, who were quite happy to maintain the status quo and turn a blind eye to injustice, and we need to acknowledge that. Just as a few years before, um, when William Wilberforce was lobbying for the abolition of slavery, uh, he met with opposition from many members of the established church. And so, if not the next slide please. and so a question that we need to ask is, what is it? that gets in the way of some Christians being oblivious or unconcerned about injustice. It's just a question I'm gonna to ask today. And then if I wanna bring it one step closer, this is a question that we should all ask ourselves. I'm not throwing it out there, I think it's a question for all of us. What are those injustices in our society that we are blind to? What are those things occurring now that are we, are, we don't see and we don't take action on. Um, I'm conscious that the media plays a massive role, not just in what we hear, but also in what we don't hear. Um, I think this morning, I don't have time to pose that question, but I thought I'd put up one example. Uh, Lord Shaftesbury's efforts were principally in relation to vulnerable children. So I'll just give you a current statistic for our society. In Australia, the country in which we live in the 21st century, there are over 1 million children, that's one with six zeros after it, over 1 million children that live in families where the child is adversely affected by their parents' alcohol use. Well, I think that's a disgrace. I think that's a blight on our (coughs) society. But here's a question I'll ask you. Today's the second week of January 2022. When you start hearing news stories about that, or media commentary about that, come back to me and say, oh, no, no, remember on the 9th of January 2022, you preached about this, and now it's going to take up and people are concerned about it. It's something we just don't hear about. Okay. The third point, uh, to arrive from the life of Lord Shaftesbury, is the notion that evil or injustice does not just dwell in individuals, but also in systems and structures and laws, and that we have a responsibility to tackle injustice at the institutional level as well as the individual level. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who most of you have heard of, uh, he said, If there's a horse and cart careering through a crowded marketplace, We've got a responsibility not just to tend to the injury, we have a responsibility to stop the horse the car. So, they're my sort of main points. And um, because I was worried that it was going to be all over the place, I've got a, a summary in a nutshell. Social justice is about the actions that we take, driven by compassionate concern, to address the suffering of the poorest and most vulnerable in our society. Social justice is a concept central to biblical teaching and encompasses justice, Mishpah, steadfast love, and peaceful, and peaceful unity, shalom. Social justice is action that is directed not just to our friends or family, but to all peoples, even including our enemies. We need to be attentive to the unseen, we need to remember that if we fail to address injustice, then God detests our religious practices and worship. We are called to pursue social justice at the individual, institutional, or societal level, just as Maria Millis and Lord Chalfsbury did. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the justice, kindness, and mercy be shown us. We pray simply that we in turn can have ever growing compassionate hearts and act in the interests of the most vulnerable whenever we see that suffering. We pray in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ.